Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9. Good morning. It's a morning run and we are coming up to the end of uh, our show this morning, but not before we have a full-on discussion about what's uh, uh, happening, what's working in markets and what's not. It's time for the SNM show. I'm Shrad Kutin with me, Tan Chung Han. It is uh, 9.35 and today on the show we have with us a fairly regular face uh, on radio, if you like uh, to use that odd expression, uh, Dr. Suresh uh, Ra- uh, Ramanathan, um, and he's an independent forex strategist. Um, Chunan, what, Han, what is the, the topic of the day? Well, first things first, I want to talk about the whole phase on radio as opposed to phase four radio. So there's a, there's, there is a difference there, okay? <laughs> first things first. All right. Uh, so look, Suresh, this is your first chat with BFM in the Trump era. And we'll uh, go into that in uh, you know, these global and macro factors in just a bit. But I want to start off with this, though. So the ringgit has gained a word that you haven't uh, associated with the local currency for a while now. The ringgit has gained over 1% year to date. So how would you describe this move? Is this a breather of sorts? Is it a, a calm before the storm? How would you describe it? Uh, you know, it's interesting to see the ringgit strengthening by 7 cents from 450 to 443. It's, it's pretty good. Now, to say whether this is actually uh, a flash in the pan or whether this is going to be a permanent feature for the ringgit uh, to strengthen, it's still a big question mark. Uh, if you look at uh, the external events that are occurring, uh, based on what Trump is doing the last few days since coming to the office, it's a bit drastic. So I think th- there is that, that external volatility in the market still intact there. But uh, yes, ringgit has gained, but it has gained very much due to the weakness of the US dollar itself the last few days. Now, we haven't really seen that volatility because it has been somewhat range-bound, right, from about 4.43 to 4.48 or so over the last uh, few weeks. Yeah. So what do you mean by the volatility, though? Where are we seeing that? In different pairings, you mean? or I, I think the, much of the volatility here is based on the dollar movements itself. Okay. The dollar has actually come off quite significantly right. the last few sessions. So now this mainly yeah. is a Trump story moving forward there yeah. because over the last couple of years, it's been Fed hike, Fed hike, uh, Fed hike, Fed hike. Now, you're saying Trump policies yeah. take center stage. Yeah. yeah uh, yes, at this point in time. But we've got to wait until January 30th uh, and February 1st when we have the Fed's two-day meeting itself. So if the Fed raises rates uh, by end of this month, then the, the game changes all over again. So but, it's likely that you know the dollar gets ground again, back again. Yeah. But that trajectory is also very much dependent on the economic data, which uh, could get a shot in the arm uh, due to Trump policies, right? So again, I'm just trying to establish this, uh, the Fed, uh, the projected path of normalizing U.S. interest rates. Does that take a backseat now to what Trump has conveyed in the media, to you know his recent actions since his, since his inauguration? Uh, basically, expanded fiscal spending. Yeah, that it is to a large extent, yes, I have to agree with you on that uh, if you look at you know his renegotiation on NAFTA, it's there, and it's pulling out of TPP. Uh, now we don't know what other rabbit he's going to actually pull out of the box. Uh, but what I do notice is that uh, he has talked the dollar down on few occasions. Uh, also, we notice that uh, he's he's not showing a strong inclination for a very strong dollar itself. So, and if he wants to push for free trade agreements on a bilateral basis. Uh, the dollar can't be very strong itself. But what's very interesting from this is that as much as 
the policy or the Trump's presidency does not want an extremely strong dollar, but the market tends to favor a strong dollar itself. And that, that strength in the dollar seems to be coming more on expectations of a weakness in the rest of the world itself. You know, if, if the largest economy in the world is, is pulling out of a large free trade agreement, uh, there's going to be a lot of losers. And if it's actually going to go on a stage of bilateral trade agreements, then you can pick and choose who he wants to trade with. So, which means the rest of the world are at the mercy of the American economy. And that means uh, by, by default, uh, the dollar can be very strong for the rest of the world, but it could be very weak for the Americans itself. So, it, we, could, we could see a situation where Trump wants a softer dollar, but the world is being pushed to a corner to, act, to accept a strong dollar. And that's a very interesting yeah. segue there because, yes, you rightly pointed out, yeah. Trump has said that the dollar is too strong. Even his nominee for Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, has also said or echoed those sentiments. So shouldn't that bode well for EM currencies, though? But you are saying that might be, uh, be uh, well, that, that might not be yeah. the case. Yeah, you know, if, 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 if policies are going to be skewed towards bilateral agreements on trade uh, and you have a local currency which is extremely strong, how are you going to export your way out? Yeah, in fact, yeah. you know, um, Suresh, there was a statement made by Ishwa Prashad, who's a professor of trade policy at Cornell University, and he said uh, Trump's trying to talk the dollar down while his policies are going in the opposite direction. And, you know, and in fact, I think uh, some editorials in the American newspapers point to some of these contradictions, right? Yeah. Wanting to strengthen the manufacturing base, which depends on the export market, but then having policies, uh, and, and, th- and that would lead to a stronger uh, dollar. And so how, how do you square the this circle, as it were. You know, the, the, the thing is that you, you can, if let's say, uh, let's assume that uh, the American economy uh, was, uh, or the, Trump kept intact the NAFTA agreements, and he kept intact the TPP agreement, and then he talks the dollar down. Okay, that's fine. Then you see a lot of emerging currencies gaining ground. But now he's pulling out of or, TPPA, and then he's revising the NAFTA agreement, and then he's talking the dollar down. How do you expect the rest of the world to accept a weaker dollar? Uh, because their currency will appreciate uh, automatically itself. So they are also pushed to a corner to accept that they need their currencies to be softer as well. So there's a divergence between the trade agreements and the policies that Trump is doing and the direction of the dollar where he's talking it down. So it looks like a, it's, it's going to be extremely difficult to, to see a situation where you're coming out of free trade agreements and TPPA and NAFTA, but also you're talking the dollar. It, it, Trump is making American economy look more like an emerging market economy, while the rest of the world who are actually emerging market economies, who are actually trying to actually export their way out. So it, it is a conflux or even actually I would say a, a disparity between what the thoughts in the market are and what the policy is. Mm. Now what could be some of the key risks to that view though? Because yes, you've addressed TPPA, you know, NAFTA, you know, he's made these comments already, but you know, he still hasn't directly you know, challenged China yet. You know, so there is, uh, I mean, I would think there'll be a risk. So, you know, how do you see more uh, policy details emanating from the Trump administration than altering the outlook for the dollar? I think uh, if, if the first 90 days, even the first 100 days in office is going to be very crucial. It's very obvious. And what I notice is that he's been very drastic in, in renegotiating the NAFTA and then putting himself out of TPP. Uh, he could be probably actually, uh, he, he indicated actually that there's going to be more taxes uh, if a lot of American companies are operating overseas and if they don't want to relocate back to America itself. So he's, he's looking very much uh, on an internal basis, but... The, the key here is if you want to do that, you can't, you can't actually accept the world 
to to be forced to a corner to accept some of their policies itself. So many of them would be going on bilateral trade agreements itself. So like what uh, the trade minister pointed out in Malaysia the other day, that if the TPPA doesn't work, then Malaysia would be forced to go into bilateral agreements itself, But which, which we have done before. So to a large extent, as I said, on many occasions, whether Malaysia is in TPP or even out of it, it does not matter at all because we've been growing even when we were not part of that agreement itself. Mm. Now, uh, also still keeping things U.S.-centric for now, at least for this first segment of the show. Uh, so Fed rate hikes, you know, they are saying several between now and 2019. Yeah. Do you have a particular call on that front? I think the meeting this month is going to be very crucial. Mm-hmm. I expect a 25 basis point hike, uh, probably giving some support for the dollar itself. Uh, but aside from that, uh, if you look at the comments that Janet Yellen has been giving, she's been gaining ground on, on a hawkish tone itself. So it's very obvious. But for the rest of the world, emerging Asia especially, uh, what you notice is a rate hike in America. And then if that is being accompanied with the strength of the dollar, then again, it's a run on the emerging market currencies itself. All right. One other quick global uh, macro factor here. Are oil prices even relevant in this conversation? <laughs> That's a good, good question. <laughs> because yeah. Uh, yeah, over the recent years, yeah. there's Fed hike, oil, yeah. Fed hike, oil. Yeah. Now it's like, well, you got Trump, yeah. you know, oil, relevant? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you if you look at the stockpiles in America, and if I read the news uh, the last few days, uh, stockpiles have been building up. It's it's a drag on the on the oil price itself. Yes, OPEC actually made a decision to cut production, but you know, if you ask me whether that has um, made a difference, it has only made a difference in the first few days or even weeks after the decision. But aside from that, oil is actually rather stagnant and it has detached itself from the movement of the dollar itself. So mm-hmm. that's that's very interesting because we would have assumed that, you know, you had a strong dollar, oil prices come down. Now, it looks to me that, you know, uh, the dollar is strong, but oil prices have also stabilized. Uh, so if you really need to see oil prices go up very significantly, you need a sharp drop in the dollar itself. So which if, if that's forthcoming, then you could see a sharp move in oil. We'll be back uh, with the SNM, SNM show in just a few minutes. After this, we continue our discussion of the ringgit in the age of Trump, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, we return with the SNM show, Tan Chung Han and myself, Sharad Kutin, and our guest, Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, uh, independent forex tra- strategist, um, we would look. We were talking about Trump, his trade policies, uh, and how it has an effect on the U.S. dollar, and of course related to the ringgit. Where do we go from now, from here in our conversation? Yeah, and now we'd like to focus on uh, some of the more domestic uh, factors here. But I do want to start with uh, what I referred to at the beginning of this show. Right, so Suresh, uh, the ringgit year to date has gained about one point one percent against the dollar. Uh, yet, in your recent note, you talk about how the ringgit is in crisis mode. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile? crisis mode with gaining over 1%? You know, uh, the ringgit was in a crisis way back in July 2015 onwards. Very obvious. Because when you look back on the currency itself from 1998, September 30th, right until middle of 2015, uh, it never breached 380 at all. So after middle of 2015, it has actually breached the 380 and then it's moved up to as high as even 450. And it is not able to come back to the 380 handle and below itself. You know, if you look back between the September 30th, 1998, right until 2015, July, global markets were in turmoil. Uh, there are so many event risks domestically, externally, and yet the ringgit could hold on to a 3.8 level. 
One period it was pegged and the other period it was freely floated as well. And yet it was staying below 380. So if it broke above 380 and it's staying above 380, there's something fundamentally wrong. Uh, which I believe. That's why, actually, as I said, the note, ringgit is in a crisis mode. So yeah. are you saying we are entering this new normal for the ringgit against the dollar? Would you call this a new normal? I wouldn't say it's a new normal. Okay. Be- yeah, because, you see, uh, the ringgit actually fundamentally uh, does not trade with a full handle at all. Uh, because the structure of the economy is so strong to actually absorb that. But it is very sad to know that for the last one in our years, it is not able to break below four at all. Mm. So which means something's cracking in the economy. Uh, some structures, some barriers are actually that is not allowing it to actually come back below 380 at all. Suresh, to what extent uh, the the problem of the price of uh, oil related to the ringgit? Because we did see, in fact, I mean, the fall of oil, uh, in the ringgit following that, right? So uh, is, it, is it that that's a, a large part of the story? You know, if you, if you look back, actually, between 1998 and 2015, oil prices were around like 40, 45 at one time as well. And yet we could actually manage the budget. And then oil went as high as even like 150, even close to 200 US dollars per barrel. Uh, we also saw a, a huge surplus in our expenditure, actually, which you could spend. And then now oil has come back. So which means... We were, we were, the ringgit was doing very well when the oil prices were extremely low. At the same time, when it went up, uh, ringgit was also gaining ground. Now, what we are not able to handle is the fact that when oil prices have plunged very sharply, the ringgit also moved in tandem. And that is something which the economy is not able to absorb. Right. So that's, that's, the, that's, I believe, is the crux of the problem itself. That a sharp drop in oil and the ringgit falling together with it itself, and it has created a negative shock to the economy itself. And we're not able to recover from that. And we'll go back to the uh, local yes. economic fundamentals in just a bit. But in staying with that oil theme here, uh, not just are we seeing the ringgit decoupling from oil prices, but we're also seeing the ringgit decouple away, or there's a divergence between how the ringgit is performing versus other commodity-linked currencies. For example, the Aussie dollar has been strengthening, but ringgit you know, hasn't really done that. So why is that? Though? Why is that that disconnect, not just from the oil prices, I want to focus on the disconnect between other uh, commodity-linked currencies and the ringgit? I think that is, uh, what you said actually is eh, that uh, it is disconnected itself from from the commodity cycle itself. Very obvious palm oil, even crude oil, even LNG. And, and the fact that actually that you see that you know the ringgit decoupling there and not able to recover, which means uh, it is it is actually being influenced by other factors in the market itself. Mm. Uh, now, it could be uh, the mechanism of trading, or it could be the new regulations by BNM, or it could be even uh, the fact that you know uh, external events like Trump. It could be those factors. But I personally feel it's got more to the micro FX trading uh, policies on ringgit itself that is actually driving it. Uh, in the sense that it has actually pushed it to a weaker level itself. Mm. Yeah. So many ways this conversation can go, uh, but one at a time. So let's go back to that economic fundamentals thing, yeah. right? Because we have here in Malaysia, you know, the government been touting that 4 to 4.5% GDP growth. It is resilient, you know, compared to what we're seeing in developed nations in Singapore and generally in the Asian context, 4, 4.5%, that's pretty respectable. But you're saying now that there's something else wrong there. What are yeah. you seeing? Well, did you check out actually the latest uh, GDP numbers in nominal terms in 2016? At one time, Malaysia's GDP in, in value terms in US dollars was actually close to the third largest in Southeast Asia. Just a few months back, we have dropped. We have dropped to fourth place. Uh, the largest economy in Southeast Asia is Indonesia. Second is Thailand. Third is Philippines. Mm-hmm. 
Philippines has overtaken Malaysia uh, in its GDP value in nominal terms in 2016, which means we are dropping off. Uh, and Singapore is actually right behind us, uh, $286 billion, if I'm not mistaken. So which means that what is actually wrong is we are not looking at expanding the size of the GDP itself. We are getting fixated on growth. You know, I'm, I'm not worried about whether you get 10% growth or 20% growth or 0.5% growth. But if my economic GDP value in size is running at 1 trillion US dollars, I can move at snail space and yet my economy is expanding in a large way. And that's what actually we need to do. It's called market monetaries. And this is something which is new. And many people are looking at this very closely. We don't want growth numbers, but we want the size of the GDP to expand. But could that be be due to the fact that, uh, you know, within the Asian context, we are a net oil exporter. So given the oil climate, you know, we have to busy ourselves with diversifying our economy. Hence, you know, that is a, a, an opportunity cost away from actually growing the pie, right? I mean, would that be a size? Yeah, yeah. That is, that, you know, we, we are quite quick to say that, you know, we are a net exporter of oil. But uh, you wouldn't be surprised that Indonesia is back in OPEC. And it was at one time a net oil exporter, then it became net oil importer. And the fact is actually it's now back into OPEC. It tells you that, you know, they've got a big economy and they're getting recognition itself. Uh, and the fact that actually they are being part of OPEC, so they call the shots in a lot of things. We are being out of OPEC, uh, but same time actually our net oil exports are not very large at all. So which means that we need to move like what Indonesia is doing. They are looking at the size of the economy, which is getting larger in size. And, and you know, Thailand is also doing the same thing. Uh, second biggest uh, economy in Southeast Asia. And this is very crucial because once you expand the GDP size, your per capita income increases tremendously. What about our uh, efforts to reduce fiscal deficit then? Because when you talk about Philippines, they are going from a budget surplus to a deficit. So it's a debt-fueled growth. Really, is, position, uh, is Malaysia in a position... I mean, yeah, we could grow the pie you know, by taking on just you know, over-leveraging ourselves like China and Philippines. But are we in a position to do that, though? No, we've, Should we've, that be the primary focus, growing the pie? We've, we've reduced the deficit for a long time. It's running at around 3.1%. At one time, it was almost 5%. So we've come to a part where it's reached a threshold. Uh, it's not necessarily you've got to move to a surplus. You could actually manage it actually at deficit of 3% and say, mm. okay, now we could have a bit of leeway to expand the GDP actually by targeting the economic size itself. All right. Uh, so you're saying, you know, uh, maybe reducing a fiscal deficit, not so important. You know, let's grow the, uh, the, the, the pie yeah. really. Okay, cool. Uh, with the little time that we have left, uh, let's focus now on Bank Negara because they, amidst all this volatility and turmoil in the ringgit, uh, they have acted as a bastion for the ringgit, right? So uh, let's start with something generic. You know, have they been very effective? Again, keeping in mind it's gained over 1.1 percent. Yeah, uh, I would say that uh, that that 1.1 percent gain in the ringgit uh, cannot be directly been due to that policies that they announced on December second. Because if you look back, uh, the decline in reserves between November fifteenth to January thirteenth, uh, reserves declined by 3.8 billion, roughly around two billion in the span of two months. Uh, uh, being spent on intervention, so which means that as much as actually we're trying to actually take credit for that, that new FEA rules that they introduced as a factor, I think much of the gains in the ringgit was actually due to the reserves being used to prop up the currency itself. 
Oh, Suresh, can I ask you, if I was an investor and understanding what you've just said, what should I do with my money? I, you know, whether, you know, should I put my hard-earned ringgit in the local stock market? Should I move it to other stock markets? Or what would your advice be? I mean, I, I would look at countries who are doing much better than Malaysia. Uh, Philippines is one which I like. Uh, the economy is growing quite strongly. Thailand and Indonesia in the region itself. Uh, the other thing I will take into account is uh, if you've got excess cash, to look at the UK back again uh, because that's going to be a very important uh, centre for investments because given that actually they're part of Brexit and their policies are changing quite drastically, uh, they could be moving more towards uh, a market-friendly policy. And, you know, previously they were, but their hands were tight. Uh, they were part of the union itself. Now they are free to do a lot of things. So they, they might be leaning closer towards actually having more free market policies itself. But does that bode well given that we could, I mean, the, the Britain and the UK that we knew before will not be the same one, you know, moving forward? So do the same principles apply, though? Well, you know, I grew up in an era where actually Britain was out of the union. And I know actually the days of Margaret Thatcher, Iron Lady. And if you look back, actually, say, Margaret Thatcher, MT, and then Theresa May, TM. We have the acronyms <laughs> which are pretty similar. What's next? Telecom Malaysia, <laughs> TM. <laughs> but the key thing here is actually, say, Britain has actually, frankly, done a right move in moving out of the union. People may say actually it's bad, but I think Britain does better out of the union than being part of the union itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, going back to uh, domestic uh, things, you, know, you mentioned foreign reserves earlier. But look, uh, foreign reserves, that's what they're there for, right? In, the, yeah. in times of volatility, you spend them, you use them. There's no point keeping them. But you're saying that the drop, that uh, $4 billion or $3.8 billion drop in yeah. two months, that is sending the wrong kind of signals to the market. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's too sharp a move, uh, $4 billion, uh, going off within two months. And, and you must bear in mind uh, November and December, uh, November 15, right, until December 15 and December 15 until January 13, uh, are not the... Uh, it, it's not the periods where there's excess liquidity or there's a hive of activity in the market. These are periods where you have literally thin liquidity. People are going on holidays and so on. Yet, almost $4 billion was spent, which tells you actually that Ringgit could have weakened more significantly. All right, real quick, looking at the Bloomberg survey, uh, the median estimate expects the Ringgit to hit 4.6 against the US dollar going into next year. What's your outlook here, Suresh? I, I still have a 450 target for the first quarter. Uh, of 28, or this quarter? Yeah, this quarter, okay. 450. And then moving forward towards by middle of the year, moving towards 460 and then progressively 480 by end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think this is going to cause panic and people are going to be like cash taking their ringgits and trying to convert it to foreign currency? I'm very surprised people are not panicky even when he broke above 380. That's why I said <laughs> ringgit was in a crisis and yet people are not panicky. <laughs> so 480, I don't think people will get panicked at all. Okay. Well, that's Dr. Suresh Ramanathan, independent forex strategist. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been the SNM Show. I'm Sharad Kutin with Tan Chung Han uh, for the morning run on BFM 89.9. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.